Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mentium podcast. This is Solveig Brown, and today I am going to be talking about leadership, life, and the power of mentoring with my guest, Artie Linworth. Artie is a former gymnast and coach, a private pilot, a bluegrass banjo and classical guitar player, a martial arts practitioner, an author of several books, and a motivational speaker. Artie has been a mentor for Mentium for over 25 years. During his 40-year career, Artie started out as an electrical engineer and rapidly progressed to various corporate leadership positions, including plant manager at several sites across the USA, senior vice president responsible for global business, and general manager of his company's operations in Chile, South America. Welcome, Artie. I am so glad to have you as a guest today. Thank you, Salve. And you know, 25 years working with Menthium, it's been an honor and pleasure for me every one of those years. So uh, it's great to be with you today, and I'll help your listeners any way I can. Oh, thank you, Artie. We so appreciate that. Artie, one of your books has an unusual title. Can you tell me how Slice the Salami, Tips for Life and Leadership, One Slice at a Time, came to be? <laughs> yeah, I'm smiling and laughing with my strange title. I'll get to that in a minute, too. There's really two parts to your question. One is, how did I become a writer? What prompted that? And two is, where'd that weird title come from? So yes. I'll, 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 I'll address those separately. Um, as background, in my 40-year career, I had the fun, I'll call it, and the opportunity to be kind of a change maker in our corporation. And I was lucky, I did well, had got lots of good teamwork and help with to, for me to do these things. But as a result, I was often put in situations to motivate change in an organization, change the culture, get worst in class to best in class, or even perhaps more challenging, getting good to great. And my company would occasionally ask me to do speeches nationally in the US and occasionally internationally at our other sites to just talk about how do you do the change process? What are tips for success? And during one of those speeches, at the end, a gentleman came up to me and he said, Artie, this was really good stuff. You ought to write a book about that. And I'm getting goosebumps as I'm thinking about it because that was a pivotal moment in my life. I hadn't even thought about writing books or anything like that, but I do like coaching. I like helping. And that triggered something in my brain. And it was the, the seed that got planted. Fast forward 10, 20 years later, uh, while living in Chile, South America, a friend of my wife's uh, cousin, so a stranger to me, at 75 years old was making a trip around the world and we had arranged for him to visit us in Chile. We had corresponded quite a bit before he came and it turns out he, John LaPlante, was a, a journalist, an author and as we got to meet each other and do things together, the long story short was, he said to me, like the Nike expression, Artie, if you like to communicate and write and share, just do it. So that was the intersection of two things, a guy after a presentation saying, you ought to write a book, and an influential guy, 75 years old, going around the world by himself. He wrote a book about that. Later at 80 years old, he wrote a book about being the oldest Peace Corps volunteer at 80. He was inspiring to me. He's now 92 years old and still inspires me. And he said, just do it. So yeah. when I got retired, when I had some more time, my first year of retirement, I dedicated myself to write my first book. So now we get to the strange title. 
what was I going to put in it? The, the initial working idea was tips for leadership, having come from 40 years in corporate leadership, starting with a blank sheet of paper, what would I give as tips that I wished I knew 40 years earlier? And I put those down, worked chapter by chapter, beginning with change making and time management and teamwork and ethics and so forth and had my sister-in-law do some initial editing. And she said, you know, I'm retired from IBM, but I wished I had a book like that, not to become a corporate leader, but to help me in my life. And the title changed to tips for life and leadership one slice at a time. But where's the crazy title come from? Often when we're thinking about making a change in our life, Salve, we end up saying, oh, I'm a gung-ho about this. I'm gonna jump right into it. Take an exercise program, for example. Wow, I'm gonna get all the right clothing. I'm gonna join a gym. I'm gonna work out three hours a day. And what happens? A day later, you have aches and pains and charming horses. <laughs> and that good idea just went out the window with like a lot of others that start with too much and you're unable to swallow the idea. And, and there's the analogy with the, with the salami. If you want to eat a salami and try to eat it whole, you can choke on it. Yeah. But if you take a slice at a time and make a tasty sandwich and it becomes positively reinforcing to you, you like it, you'll do it again. You'll have another slice and you'll do it again. You'll have another slice. And before you know it, you've eaten the whole salami. So that became the first chapter of the book because the book is about how to make change in your life for the better. And the title was Consider the Salami and take this book, take these ideas a slice at a time and work it into your life. So an intersection of a guy saying you ought to write a book, a motivational, inspirational, older guy at the time, I'm now 74. So that guy was about the same age when, when he inspired me. That connection said, write a book and my thoughts of how can I help others based on my life and leadership experience generated the title and the contents of that book. That is such a great story, Artie. What I like about the first part is that you recognized that moment when someone said something and it just lit a spark in you mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, that's it. You know, we all have those moments that are right. kind of bigger than just the moment. And I like that you held on to that spark and you didn't have time to do it then, but you remembered years later. And then with the great example of the person traveling around the world, that is great. And then the title is such a good metaphor for mm -hmm. just doing a little bit at a time and such a good reminder. So you talked a lot about change management just now. And in your book, you note that to lead yourself and others to excel, you have to be good at the change process. Throughout your career, Artie, you have been an expert at leading change management, which has resulted in increased safety, increased profitability, increased employee engagement, among other things. Can you give us an example of a change you implemented and talk about the techniques you have used to create successful change? Sure. Uh, that was probably my most fun at work was seeing what was needed, the gap analysis, closing the gap and motivating a team to get it done. And, and I, I could give you lots of stories on either safety, environment, quality, customer service, but profitability I'm gonna use as my example here because everybody gets to a bottom line one way or another. So you wanna talk about numbers. And my process number one is you have to be an effective leader if you're gonna effectively make change happen. And there's three things employees are looking for 
in a leader. First is, does the leader care for me? Second, wow. can this leader help me? Mm -hmm. And thirdly, can I trust this leader? So it becomes about touching on all of those aspects to make the visceral connection, the real connection. You can't fake sincerity. I mean, any employee is going to see right through that. You have to care about your employees. You have to take the time to see what you can do to help them. And you have to build the trust. And that's something you earn over time. It doesn't happen instantly, but it's like first impressions. It begins with the first impression and goes from there. So what was my process? Small plant, large plant, I'm talking up to close to a thousand employees. My first priority for me was to get to know every single person, meet every single person and try to remember as many of the names as I could. And I would have my administrative assistant start me out with several pages of all of the names of all of the employees and all of the shifts they worked. And I made a point to go to every operating area, every control room, night shift, day shift during my first weeks and months on the job. And many of the employees had told me, this is the first time in years I've ever met, for example, the plant manager. And it's not wow. just stopping in and knocking on the door and waving a hand and saying, okay, I can check the box. I met John or Jane. I took the time to sit and talk with them because there's two things that happen when you're out management by walking around. That, that's the expression, but it's more than just walking around. If all you're doing is touching a base and passing on, you're going to have two things that happen, Salve. One of them is going to be it's very shallow. They'll talk about sports, they'll talk about the weather. It's not really productive conversation. The other thing that happens is they figure it's the only time they're going to see Artie Linworth. So I better grab him by the throat and tell him <laughs> concern I've had for the last 20 years that nobody's taken the time to listen to me. Neither one of those are productive. So in the early conversation, it's mostly just getting acquainted, but what's important is the repetition. And that's my point. Go around, meet the people, repeat, repeat, repeat. And eventually that depth comes where you have the opportunity to build trust, they understand what you're saying, they hear the repetition, and then you have to get into the concept of change making. At this point, you got to assume they know you care about them, it's real, it's not fake, they know you can try to help them, and they trust you. So now what are you going to do as the leader? You have to get your message across. And there's a great book years ago uh, by an author named James Belasco, who wrote a book called Teach the Elephant to Dance. So you can kind of have a, a visual picture about that. And the point is, how do, you, how do you make clumsy, slow, big organizations move? And he tells the story about how baby elephants are a little easier to control than giant elephants. So when the circus folks are trying to control that elephant in the circus tent, they put a strong chain around one of the ankles. They put a strong, long uh, stake down in the ground. And the elephant gradually is conditioned to know he or she can only go a few feet from the stake and something's going to tug on the chain and they're going to stay in place. Unfortunately, as the elephant gets giant, it'll rip that stake right out of the ground. But fortunately, the habit pattern has been there. And that's the habit pattern of slow organizations that are slow to change, slow to move, and, and, and difficult to get a new culture instituted. But what happens, and here's the point of the story, when the circus tent is on fire, Salve, the elephant smells the smoke and sees the flame. And even though it's got a chain around its ankle or even a stake in the ground, 
it hightails it out of the tent. So as leaders, our job is to have those who work with us smell the same smoke we smell, see the same flames we see, so that they are inspired and share the vision to move to success as we want to have them move. As we see the gap, we set the vision and they're inspired to follow. So the story about profitability, we had a program for profit improvement in our manufacturing plant. And I would make a point to let everybody know this was our theme. We had, we had a three-part theme, uh, safety, quality, and cost, but I'm talking now about change management for cost control. And long story short, within a year, we became corporate leaders of the corporate award for uh, profit improvement programs uh, globally. Wow. Because I was able to connect with the people. They understood and clearly saw the vision. I reinforced to them, and we can talk later about positive reinforcement, how every single person makes a difference. And it adds up $10 here, $10 there, times 100, times 1,000. You're starting to make profits. And that's what we did. And the good story is this is repeatable. About a year later, I was transferred to another plant, new person on the block, several hundred people began the same process and proud to say that plant became the next year's corporate leader for profit improvement. The process works. So engage with the people, show them you care, show them you can help them, and then show them they can trust you. I hope that answered the question about that the definitely answers the question. I am taking notes as you're talking. Those are that's a really great recipe. And I like that it is repeatable and it's really about connecting with people and yeah. connecting with the people on the show. I love the showing them that you care. Um, so it sounds also like you really got the team invested. So once you got people to smell the smoke and see the fire and, you know, in this example you gave us trying to, you know, increase profitability, reduce waste, how did you foster that team building and that passion for getting results? Again, coming back to the leadership side of it, it's a focus on service. Uh, a lot of times we as employees say we got to please the boss. So we're thinking about service upward. We're not necessarily thinking about service sideways or downward. And I had a nice conversation with one of my employees years back. I still remember his name, Tom Muir. I can visualize me sitting across the desk from him in his office. And I was asking him, you know, what are things I can do to help you? And he said to me, well, let me give you a story. And he said, you know how you could be the coach of a bunch of hurdlers, track racing, hurdling, team of, of hurdlers. What's our objective? Our objective is to get to the finish line first. We'll be a good team when all of us get to the finish line before all of the competition. So what's the role, even though it may not be legal, what's the role of the best coach? Is to be a few steps ahead of the runner and knock down each hurdle. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> so what happens is every one of your team members gets to the finish line before everybody else. Now, of course, you can't do that in a real race. You can't do that in real life. But you can do that if you have a service orientation to your team, because you're in a position, you have the authority, you have the responsibility, you have the resources, the connections that many of them never have, never will, just because of hierarchy. But if you can knock down hurdles for them, then your team can win. Yeah. Your team can get whatever the objective is to go forward. So as you're working with your team, knocking down the hurdles, the one other thing you can do 
to develop the right continuous improvement is to reinforce the right behaviors. Okay, it's one thing to knock the hurdles down. The other thing is, what are they going to do? Right. And, and there's a great book by Aubrey C. Daniels. It's called Bringing Out the Best in People, How to Apply the Astonishing Power of Positive Reinforcement. And boy, I read that book several times in a number of others of his books. Aubrey C. Daniels, The Power of Positive Reinforcement. And the short story there is, like we train animals, they're not going to get it right the first day. So you have to reinforce any movement in the right direction. Right. Trying to change culture in an organization. It's not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen with every person. But we have to look for their intent to try to help the team, their intent to move that, that boulder a little bit further along, a little further up the hill, whatever. And as we leaders find the ways to connect with them and reinforce that behavior that's moving in the right direction, they all start moving in the right direction. And that flywheel effect keeps building momentum, building steam, building power. And like John Maxwell says, teamwork makes the dream work. When they're all working together, when they've been positively reinforced for their attempts to get better and better, they'll keep wanting to get better and better. And if you're service oriented to them, with them, for them, and they're working their side of the equation to tr keep trying to do better, it's a winning combination, Salve. It works. Yeah, and it's that servant leadership model where you're giving to them, they're giving to you. Can you talk a little bit more about the positive reinforcement? You talk about it in your book. Can you show how that works in real time? Because in your book, you give some specific examples of how to actually do that. And you said it works great for kids, spouses, workers, everybody. <laughs> well, First of all, you have to ask yourself, what is, you, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Where's the gap? And then be overt in the conversation. So for example, if I have an employee in a staff meeting that I know has good ideas, but they're quiet, they're shy, who knows why? And they're not coming up with good ideas. At the meeting, I might specifically ask, you know, hey, Salve, can you, what's, what's your thought on this? Draw them out a little bit. And then of course, when Salve answers, I say, hey, that's, that's a good idea. But then if it's still a pattern of behavior that's not moving in the right direction, I might have then the one-on-one, -on -one, not embarrassing, not in front of everybody else, but have a conversation like, hey, Salve, I'm paying you to be a contributor to the team. And that doesn't mean an isolation because there's synergy in brainstorming. There's some kind of playing off each other that works. We've all done that go to Mars or go on the moon test where you try to figure out in priority order whether you need a match or you need oxygen or you need something else. You do it alone as a test first and then you do it with a few other people and almost without fail when the few people get together and brainstorm about the best priority, they get a better answer. So I need Salve, I need Jane, I need Joe to be giving their ideas even if they're not the best ideas yet, it sparks other ones with everybody else. I have a conversation with them about expectations and how important it is that their ideas get surfaced and then i'm going to just as i said i'm going to look for every opportunity when they on their own give an idea to figure out how can i motivate them and positively reinforce them and that, it's worth making making one mention 
the whole idea of positive reinforcement is not in my eyes, it's in the eyes of the recipient of the recognition. Now, if you, let's say, Salve, are, are, are embarrassed by being rewarded in front of your peers because you figure you know, you, you're not going to be seen well by the others, then I may need to be careful to not, in that case, reinforce you right when you do it, but make sure at the end of the meeting, talk to you and say, hey, Salve, that was exactly what we were talking about yesterday. Those kinds of ideas, look how your idea sparked Jane's and then that sparked Bob's and that sparked John's and that came back to Mary and look where we ended up thanks to your initial thought. So that positive reinforcement, however it's received positively by the, by the employee is what we're trying as leaders to foster, reinforce the movement and the right behavior, whether it's get more participating, participation in meetings, getting them to meetings on time, being better prepared when they come into you with problems instead of here's an issue, I have three suggestions and this would be my recommendation. Is there anything I'm missing? That's all training. It's all coaching on how do you get a monkey put on your back or how do they come in with solutions and you can give them more advice if needed or just say, go for it. Right. And what I also hear you saying too, is that you make it known to the people you're working with is that everyone matters, that everyone has a good opinion to contribute. And it also sounds like you are good at helping people get out of their comfort zone. And um, how have you done that? I think that's an issue that a lot of people struggle with. They want to take the risk. They want to be able to contribute more, but it's scary. So how do you help people get out of their comfort zone? I think part of it comes, I'll have to admit, from 40 plus years before when I was a gymnast. Uh-huh. <laughs> because in the sport of gymnastics, it's an individual sport, team sport, but you're on the equipment by yourself, by your lonesome mountain in front of everybody and the judges. But the practice is done in the gym with other people. You have the coach, but what typically happens is the more senior gymnasts coach the novice gymnasts that are just starting. And as a result, all of us learn how to be helpful team players and how to coach other people to success. But I, I use the example of gymnastics because it's very real about scare, fright, and comfort zone. I mean, you yeah. think about it, when gymnasts are learning techniques, they're flipping themselves upside down in the air, literally to break your neck and die. I mean, it's as simple as that. So as a coach, as a spotter, you, you, the person who's hands-on helping keep the head from hitting the floor and rotating the hips when they need to. Uh, and for those who can't see me on the podcast, I'm waving my arms around. Yeah. <laughs> that's what gymnasts do when they're describing how they're working a, a move or a technique. So you learn to progress in increments. It comes back to the whole coaching, training, positive reinforcing model. If the first time you tell somebody, go do a backflip and they jump up in the air on their own and land on their head, I doubt they're going to try it again. Right. Right. So as a, as a leader, as a coach, as a trainer, and that, that's what our, our leadership roles are, you explain what needs to be done, you give them the basic mechanics, and then you literally hold on to them so they succeed. Wow. They have to succeed to want to try it again, scary as it is. Yeah. And then the next time you reinforce the next most important thing for them to learn. Again, I'm getting goosebumps now, but I love leadership stuff. We can't feed them with the fire, feed a drink with a fire hose. You can't tell them, 
okay, you didn't get the backflip and here's 15 things you need to do the next time. You, you, you can't do that. And it's the yeah. same at work. You can't tell them your presentation was not bad, but here's 85 things you better do to do it better next time. <laughs> Pick the next most important thing for them to focus on, particularly if it's frightening, like doing a backflip. Well, you better tuck a little bit tighter because you'll rotate faster. That'll get your feet to the ground first instead of your head. So this next one, I'll hold you. You jump and spin, but try to grab your knees and pull a tighter tuck and get your feet around first. So you incrementally let them feel the success, learn the technique. And then when, they, when you judge, they're starting to do it. You need to back off, let the bird fly. Right. So the spotter would then be there for a sense of confidence, but say, I'm not going to touch you. You're going to do it one way or the other. And they yeah. don't make do it on their own without being touched. Then you back off and you say, I'll watch you from a distance. And then it's theirs. They, they have it from then on. Wow. And it's exactly the same in an industrial, in a business, in a work environment. Hold them so they succeed. Don't let them fail as you're trying to coach the next important refinement in whatever skill they need to be coached on. Give them the reinforcement so they sense the success themselves and then give them some space to do it on their own and build their own confidence. That makes sense, Salve? That makes sense. And now I'm the one that has goosebumps. That is a powerful <laughs> story of how to do it. And it goes back to slice of salami, one right. slice at a time. So right. it's that whole notion of small changes and small steps in the right direction, especially when something is scary or out of your yeah. comfort zone. Right. And it has to feel really rewarding as a coach or as a leader. When you see people that were afraid to do things like either a backflip or were afraid to speak up in a meeting. And right. then all of a sudden that moment where they realize they can do it on their own and they've been empowered. That's I mean, great. Frankly, that, why do I love working with Mentium for 25 years? Because you and Mentium and the process feed me with the joy and pride of seeing that success in mentees. Uh, when yeah. I'm working with someone through the course of a year, month by month talking with them, nudging them into their discomfort zone and then talking about it. Uh, I write in my book, sometimes we win and sometimes we learn. It's not a question of winning and losing. Right. It's a question of winning and reflecting and learning so the next time you can try to win more. So as a mentor with Mentium, that's the joy. Uh, I, I, you may know, I, about two weeks ago, I met for the first time face-to-face -face with a mentee, Elsie uh, Chapa, who was in Mexico at the time, 17 years prior, she was my mentee. Right. And we've maintained a relationship since then. And I would be so honored and proud when she would write to me and say, I've got an opportunity for a new promotion or a job change. Artie, what do you think about this one? We'd chat for a little while and she'd move on and she'd move up. Yeah. And often during the course of a year the mentees get these kinds of opportunities and i start out with someone who's working in x position and by the time the year is over they're already into something bigger and better and doing things they didn't themselves know that they could do yeah so that, that I mean, it's just great it is just powerful right it's powerful what about when you were younger in your career did you have mentors that helped you and 
and did that make an impact? Because you are so passionate yeah. about mentoring. You're so passionate yeah. about giving back. So yeah. I'm curious, who were those people for you? Yeah. I, I, there's five that come to mind. I mean, I got every one of these in my head. Uh, I, I've, it's just like when that guy came up and said, you ought to write a book. These are moments in your life you don't forget. Yeah. When I first started out as a new engineer, just out of college, and starting to meet some of the other people in this 2000 employee chemical plant, uh, another engineer said to me, George Spears is his name. He said to me, Artie, you're just out of college. You're still into the routine of going to school and studying and taking tests. Let me give you this recommendation. If you're thinking of leadership, get yourself a master's in engineering administration. Wow. Uh, Syracuse University, where we graduated from, my wife and I, and where I was working right in the area of Syracuse, they offered an engineering administration course. Like It's like an MBA, but it's offered out of the engineering school. So George was one of my first mentees saying, do something more with your career, continuously learn, continuously grow. And it took three years and I went to night school in the middle of everything else going on. I got a master's in engineering administration. It was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Jack Richards, my first boss, same time while I was learning about going for a master's degree, my first boss had a sign on his wall because he was not embarrassed to post it. He knew himself and it said, not to decide is to decide. What did it mean? He was a procrastinator. He had trouble making decisions, but he was a loving boss. Uh, I love him for what he helped me. He took me under his wing. I'll never forget his coaching to me, giving me guidance on how to work within the system, how to work with different employees. Uh, and in particular, reminding me kind of him saying, although I may not be so good at making decisions and procrastinate sometimes, if you can be thinking about that, remember what's on my wall as my reminder, you're never gonna have all the information. Don't get into analysis paralysis when you need to decide, decide. So that was, that was Jack Richards, my first boss. Don Daly was a higher up in the organization, but I was lucky. He took me under his wing also and would coach me about like the bigger picture of where to go with your career and how to prepare. And one thing that was nice, he was an open, transparent kind of open door policy guy. And we got to chat a lot. And I write about in my book, don't be afraid to cross the threshold. He made me feel comfortable to go and talk with him, even though he was a big guy in the corner office. And he was a good mentor. And it turns out that I became a sounding board for him. And it was a nice two-way street where he would want to find out what, what's the groundswell thought about this issue or that issue. So have the courage to seek mentors, reach out for them. You'd be surprised, I think, how many will, will respond. Quickly yeah. going through just a, a couple more. I had a, a guy named Jim Scott who came from the military and he was very hierarchical. And what I learned from him is work through the organization. And he gave me a lot of latitude because his style was, Artie, I gave you this order. You need to go execute it and I'll expect to have it done on time, on budget, whatever. And he didn't micromanage me. And I, I really liked that feeling. And of course, I tried to emulate that later in my career. Another guy I had, Howard Collingwood, he was a director. I was now plant manager. And he was a courageous guy. And he, he, his approach was take some chances. You know, we're, we're here to support you. But if you got some ideas, go for it. And we did some fun and safe and appropriate and ethical things. But we did some stuff people hadn't thought about. And I learned a lot from that. And if I may, let me just 
talk talk to the other side of that coin for a minute. I mean, yeah. everybody has good advice for you, but but I wanted to share this with you, Sally. Not all the advice is going to be good, and not all the advice is going to work for you. So you have to be your authentic self. And mm -hmm. and I have two examples. Uh, one that guy Don Daly, who was great, he was terrific, levels above me, gave me good advice. And at one point we were in an organization structure where he was trying to change some of the culture and wanted us all to be a little more sophisticated and professional looking. And this was a manufacturing plant with a couple thousand people with blue collar jobs and all that stuff. But in the beginning, I was taking my mentor's advice and I wore a tie walking around the plant. This was in Florida in August heat. Oh, wow. And one day a blue collar worker came up to me and I was glad he spoke up and he said something like, you gotta be crazy, Artie, wearing a tie here in Florida. What are you trying to do? Who are you trying to impress? <laughs> and that was, that was a learning moment for me. You need to take mentor advice, but you also need to, that was, he was a mentor. In that moment, that craftsman, blue collar craftsman was a mentor. Right. And I never wore my tie after that. I mean, of course, when I was in meetings, I would, but going out in the plant, I was able to be more trustworthy, more acceptable, more lifelike and real. And that was more my authentic self without my tie, despite my mentor saying I ought to wear it. Um, and one other example, just quick to finish this story. You've probably noticed by now I'm a cheerleader type. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Yeah. So that, that was my natural style. And again, a, a, a good intentioned human resource professional sat with me quietly and he said, Artie, you know, if you're looking to move up in the organization, and I'm shaking my head for those who can't see me, he was shaking his head and he was saying, that cheerleader thing, you gotta simmer it down. You gotta quiet it down. That's not really sophisticated enough for the big leagues. So watch your step, be a little more subdued, and you'll go further. I tried it, it didn't work. I didn't feel authentic. And I have to say, I went back to cheerleading and I have to say I had lots of success anyway. So you have to be appropriate for the place. You're not gonna go do handstands and cartwheels in an executive board meeting. But when I'm passionate about something, my people are gonna know it. When I'm enthusiastic, they're gonna smell the smoke and see the fire that I see and that I smell. And that comes from visceral connection with the people around you. So listen to your mentors. It's 80-20. 80% of the advice you get is gonna be great, but don't make it on the assumption it's gonna be 100%. That is great advice. And I like the reminder that you still have to be authentic to yourself and mm -hmm. who you are and not try to pretend to be somebody else at work. Um, in your book, you observe that managers are good at getting things done, but leaders are good at knowing what needs to be done. Do you have a process for coming up with a strategic vision and direction to know what needs to be done? Yeah, yeah. And maybe the headline is, it's not remote control. <clears throat> Got to be on the ground. Okay, so half my career was managing chemical plants around the USA and the other half roughly was managing businesses around the world. So th there's different objectives and requirements in each of those kinds of jobs. But my process, as you ask, my approach was essentially the same in both. It goes back to what we talked about earlier. My setting foot in a new plant, whether it's a thousand people or a hundred people and wanting to meet them face to face 
wanting to hear what their concerns are, wanting to listen, earning their respect, and finding out what's going on. Uh, now, in the beginning, uh, when you're doing this face-to-face -face stuff, and if you're inexperienced at it, just ask a lot of questions. You don't have to be the know-it-all. Uh, in fact, again, I, I love a lot of John Maxwell's quote, quotes. He says, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Oh, that's a powerful, yeah. Right. It's, it's not about going around the plant or going around the business environment and impressing them with your knowledge. You don't have to be the smartest thing since sliced bread on the planet. But they do need to know you care about their issues and that your job is to solve their problems, whether right. it's the boss's problems or the subordinate's problems or the customer's problems. So my process was simply to do that, go out and meet them, go out and know them. And, and for myself, assess what the issues were, where, where the gap analysis was. And, and the good news is for the listeners, the more you do it, the easier it gets. It's like doing backflips. The more you do it, the easier it gets. So in the beginning, I might not know when I'm walking around a new plant what I have to pay attention to. But I will tell you, Salve, when I walked into a new plant some years later, literally almost the first day, the gap analysis would be imprinted in my mind. I would look and see housekeeping. Is the place messy or neat or orderly or not? I would look and see people following safety procedures or not. I would look and see attitudes. Are they smiling? Are they, are they grumpy? Are their heads down? Um, you pick up a lot visually and obviously you pick up a lot by chatting with folks. So as you do it more often, it gets real quick to see here's maybe three or four things we got to jump on right away. And it's the same in the business world. I, I, I had the fun again of picking up a business that for seven years had not made any profit. Fortunately, the company couldn't, I say fortunately, the company couldn't sell the business. Nobody wanted it. Customers were running away to the competition. And this was my first job going from manufacturing to business. I guess they figured, well, Linworth can't screw it up any worse than it already is. So let's put him in there as the vice president. It was a plastics division. And I didn't know a lot about the business but I asked a lot of questions. And I made a point to see every one of the employees. And I made a point to learn what do our people do? The research center, what are they doing? What do they need? The salespeople go out on sales call and of course visit our most important customers. And then ask them, what are we doing wrong and what do we need to do to fix it? And what do we need to do to get more of your business? And listen, and then work the issue with our own people in house. The process works. If we're sincere at trying to help the client, if we're sincere on trying to help the employees in the plan, if we're sincere on trying to solve the boss's problems and work the issues in the community, in the plant, with the business, it works. And, and basically that's the process I followed and I have enjoyed the successes that I write about in the book and that I teach in the book. That, that's what the book is about. My, when I started the book, each chapter was, what can I teach someone that they can learn that I had to learn by benefit of good mentors and the hard way. And it's right. Exactly. I just read the book this weekend and there are so many good actionable items in it. It is fantastic. And I like that you are paying it forward to help the next generation of leaders with your hard earned wisdom and expertise. And I like how you talk about the importance of listening, observing, asking people what needs to be done, and then figuring out that big picture of how to make the small steps to 
get there. Yeah, and you're just paying it forward, a comment on paying for any who might be wondering. I don't push my books to make book sales. I made my money in my corporate life. All of my book royalties go to charity. So wow. when, you, when you buy the book, you can, and you can see on my website where it goes, but um, when you buy the book, the royalty ends up going directly to a charity. And all I want to do is pay forward the lessons I've learned and help those that I can't touch directly. It was always a pleasure with the mentees working one-on-one, -on -one, month by month, with the people in the plant, with my gymnastic uh, uh, teams. That reward is immediate and right there, but there's lots of folks who might benefit from a book and I might never see them other than seeing their five-star reviews on Amazon. It's a good feeling to know what's happening and that the book is out there and that people can get it in soft cover or digital version and, and learn from it. Yeah, that's so true. Artie, do you have any habits that you feel have contributed to your success? Yeah, uh, two come to mind immediately, Salve. One is you must have a fail-safe follow-up system. Your word is your bond. If you say you're going to do something, make it work. And I'll talk about that in a second. And the other one, this may sound weird, don't try anything. But let me clarify. What I'm okay. really saying is don't say I'll try to do X. Okay. Get in the habit of I will do X. When when you say I'll try, you're building in an excuse. So let me talk talk about that one first and then I'll work back to the fail-safe uh, okay. follow-up systems. When, you, when somebody says, hey, here's something that's needed. When can you get it done? I'll try to get it done by Friday. That's a, that's a non-response. You've already built in, Salve, an excuse. Well, I'll try. I said I tried. All right, I didn't get it done on Friday. I tried. That doesn't deliver anybody anything. Yeah. So we have to build a habit of committing ourselves. Um, I once read somewhere that the pioneers, when they crossed the USA, they used to get to a tough river crossing. And what would they do? They would stand on the edge of the riverbank and take their expensive leather hat and fling it across the river. A commitment to get to the other side or else they've thrown away their favorite hat. Wow. So you make a commitment, make a commitment. I'm gonna get to the other side. I'm gonna do it for you. Salva, you need this by Friday, I'll get it done. Now it has to be realistic. You're not just gonna say, I'll get it done by Friday and say the words and then fail on your commitment because that's that's the other side of the, the next thing I'm gonna talk about is the fail safe follow-up system. My word is my bond. If I say I'm gonna get it done by Friday, I sure as heck better get it done by Friday. So make commitments that are real and have a system of follow-up so you can advise people if you're running into trouble. But get out of the habit of saying, I'll, it's just a habit. People say, I'll try to get it by Friday. No, get in the habit of saying, I'll get it by Friday and then think about, about what you got to do to meet your commitment. Organize yourself. So that jumps into the first one. A fail-safe follow-up system. Decades ago, I started with notes to myself and checklists and I got what I love and still use even in retirement, it's an accordion file with 31 days to the month and 12 months to the year. And when I have a commitment that's due on a certain date, I'll put it in my follow-up in enough time in advance to make sure I can get it done on time to let me see the task. Uh, sometimes I'll make lists, a lot of times I'm just, so I don't have to do double work, I'll just take a piece of paper and if the piece of paper is something Salve gave me and I have to get an answer to you by Friday, I'll have that piece of paper on top of my desk. And my process is 
the night before, I organize my work for the next day. And then in the next day, it's a continuous process several times a day when I've completed a task to not just jump to the next task that was on the list that was originally the night before set out. That was the priority the night before. A lot of things may have changed between midnight and 8 a.m. and between 8 a.m. and noon and between noon and 2.30. So when, when you're focused on a task and it gets done, take your deep breath, give yourself a pat on the back and then look at your whole list and look at what new things came in. And the process is the next task I do is the most important priority to be done next. And that might mean it's a five minute job just to get it over and done with and out of the way. And then you jump into the one hour project that has to get done. And then the typical advice, do your most important ones early in the morning. So you got a lot of slack time to catch up if, if it runs out rather than make it the last thing of the day. But have a follow-up system that lets you look at your priorities every day and review your priorities through the day as you finish each task and go to the next one. With that, then you'll have your commitments. And if you see you're running behind, let people know, hey, I'm running behind. And particularly if it's with a boss, give them enough time so that it can, they can either help you with changing priorities or adding resources. That's what right. a boss controls. Yeah. Change the priorities and say, all right, it's not that important. Or those six other jobs that you thought you also had to have done by Friday, let's let them slide to next week. I'm the boss. I can okay that. Let's you stay focused on this one to get it done by Friday. That's the priority. Or they can help you with resources. I'll give you Jack and Jane and Joe and Mary to help you work on this. And then you can get it done. So advise your boss when you're running behind it's a it's a written it's a verbal contract you don't want to breach a contract so give enough advance notice so your boss can either give you priority help or resource help or whatever and you should end up coming with the solutions to say i can get it done if i had a or if i had b i can still get it done by friday don't just come on friday morning and say boss i can't do it it's too late yeah, and that comes from checking throughout the day to see where you're at and see what comes in. That's a really powerful habit. It sounds like I'm. That's great. Um, you have had a four-decade career that has been really impressive. It's taken you all over the U.S. and to South America. What would your advice be to up-and-coming leaders? <laughs> Read my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, seriously, ties with that. It, it first thing would be continuous learning. Mm -hmm. Just like George Spira said to me, get a, a master's in engineering administration. It doesn't matter what you learn, learn more. Whatever you're in, learn more. Uh, depending on what your career aspirations are and interests are, uh, let's say you're into one phase of a business and you're curious about another phase of the business, Take a course, look it up online, get a book, seek a mentor, maybe someone who you think is really good in that field and say, hey, Salve, can you help me with this? I'm thinking about that field. What would you recommend as three good books to read? Can I watch you do your work? Uh, what would you suggest they do to get prepared? So continuous learn and seek mentors. Um, the other thing would be know your strengths. Sometimes we get too hung up on, I'm not so good at this, I'm not so good at that. We spend, frankly, too much time trying to fix everything. Unless a weakness is a make or break debility, 
don't worry too much about it. Go to your strengths. If you're good with people, work the people issues. If you're good with numbers, work the numbers issues. If you're good with strategy, work ahead of the curve on the strategy and the techniques. Work your strengths because where your strengths are is where you get your own self positive reinforcement. You'll be happy about spending a few more hours on something you like doing. Whereas if you're working on your weaknesses, you'll be distracted 10 times out of 12 and you won't stick with it very long. You just need to stick with it long enough so it's not a, a glaring deficiency. Work your strengths, power your strengths, leverage your strengths. So yeah, read my book, but more important, continuous learn, find your mentors, seek them out and work your strengths. That makes sense. Yeah, that is great advice. Artie, we have time for one final question. Do you okay. have a favorite saying, quote, or motto? I have more than one. You I can have... say multiple ones if you yeah, want. I, 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 I give you a few. One okay. early in our lives, my wife and I had uh, read this quote by Art Linkletter um, that was, things work out best for those who make the best of the way things work out. Wow. Things, things work out best for those who make the best of the way things work out. And what it's really saying is not everything works out the way you hope or wish or expect. The question is, what do you do next? Do you grump about it? Do you moan about it? Do you pity yourself? Do you fret about it? Or do you say, all right, what do I need to do to adjust? That's that sometimes we win, sometimes we learn attitude. So things will work out best when you make the best of the way things work out. So I like, I like that phrase and it helps keep you focused on, you can get through this, there's always a way around it. And in fact, one of the things that sets leaders apart is I think they have an innate belief, there's always a solution. Yeah. You have to believe there's always a solution. You may not know it right now, you may have not figured it out, but you seek to find that solution and you'll find a way to make it work out for the best. The other one I mentioned was already, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and, and I think that speaks to how you should be a, a service oriented leader. You have to be sincere about caring for them. Um, if you want a lot of good quotes, I'd say go to John Maxwell. He's just got so many great leadership books and he's got away with words. I can't remember all of them, but I actually do write them down and, and they inspire me from time to time. But I think with those two I've given you, it's probably enough to get, to get started and, and uh, provides a little bit of a glimpse of my own philosophy of life and leadership. Yes, Artie, thank you so much. Those are fantastic quotes. And thank you so much for being our guest today. I really appreciated you sharing your wit and your wisdom and your wealth of knowledge about leadership, change management, mentoring, and life. Nice. Um, for those of you who would like to read more of Artie's practical advice to enhance your life and work, you can order his book, Slice the Salami, Tips for Life and Leadership, One Slice at a Time on Amazon or at artielinworth.com. And remember, all proceeds go to charity. Thank you so much for listening to this Mentium podcast. And thank you again, Artie. You're very welcome, Sally. A pleasure. And I wish everybody the best as they work these exercises. Take care.